0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
1: (laughs) All right, well, welcome to our final session on 1 Peter. And uh, 10 weeks, 10 weeks making our way through this uh, small letter, but oh, man, Peter he uh, put so much into everything in this letter. And I've really enjoyed just teaching it. Um, basically, a lot of my teaching is just me being three or four days smarter than you guys. I mean, I'm just like maybe a, a couple days ahead. I'm just studying this stuff. <laughs> like, and then turning around and sharing it like I'm an expert, but I'm actually just learning it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's rich. It's been a very rich experience going through uh, First Peter. So why don't I pray and uh, we will dive into our last session. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness and for your goodness. Uh, we thank you uh, that you are a God of grace and a God of peace. And you call us to yourself. And we're gathered here tonight through electronics, but we are gathered. And uh, we do pray, my guess is that there are some people here tonight that have had a whirlwind day and are having a hard time focusing in. Um, We have such busy lives and so many things pulling us this way and that way and so many things causing anxiety. And so to jump ahead tonight, we are going to cast all of our anxieties upon you. We place all of our cares upon you. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word. That's our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, as we uh, jump in, let me begin with a question. And no, I won't put you in a breakout room right away. There may be one coming, though, but not, not yet. Um, let me ask you this. What is your natural, your natural gut reaction to authority?
0: I don't like
1: it. <laughs> okay, now some people, some of us don't like it, but that doesn't. But you'd still be like, I still, you know, I'll abide by it. Like, yeah, I'll still obey, but I don't okay. like it. You don't like it, but you're not going to rebel. You're not going to be uh, uh, fighting against the man or anything like that, are you? Okay, others. I have no problem with it because I've been at the person in authority overseeing twelve hundred people. That's right as a as a real life tax collector. Yeah. Well and also a sheriff, you were a sheriff, yeah. weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I remember.
2: Yeah.
3: I will uh, question it and examine it.
1: You'll question it and examine it. And if you find that it's not reasonable, what will be your response? Oh, you are you oh, you, t- you uh, just uh, perfectly muted yourself there, uh, Laurie. We don't oh, know. What
3: I didn't problems. do that. Sorry, Civil <laughs> <Okay>. disobedience.
1: <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were just trying to protect yourself. It's like, well, oh, this I is what I would do.
3: <laughs> Mike, shut me up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, would you? So, if you don't like it, would you? Will you obey it?
3: If I feel that it um, is morally and ethically um, not correct, no, I will not.
1: Okay. Yeah. Good. I think there's, there's, there's scriptural warrant for that too. Yeah. Others. So Irene, Irene, I can see you talking. Are you, were you talking? Cause you're muted. <laughs> hey,
2: is it, you hear me now?
1: Yeah, we can hear you now. I can see you. You're but quite animated. Like,
2: On my machine now it says mute, but you said now you hear me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, I always would say why, or I wouldn't agree with it. And so finally, one day he said to me, Irene, I want you to do this, and don't ask me why.
3: <laughs> so
2: oh. he was always, why do you want me to do that? No, I don't agree with that. Yeah. He got sometimes a little frustrated, and, he, and one time he said, just get out of here, and don't ask me why.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
1: There you go. Right. Others? Sometimes
0: I'm a little passive aggressive. Okay. So I I pretend to go along, but I maybe don't go along as uh, enthusiastically as I should.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. I think my default position is to obey when it's convenient to me. Okay, yeah, (laughs) good. Wow, we got lots of rebels in our midst. I like this, yeah.
0: (laughs) I think I personally would follow through, but if I'm passionate that it's really wrong, then I'm very opinionated
1: very good okay good the the issue i have is if i come across a rule that is just really dumb and it doesn't have to be you know it could just be a rule in the library or it could be a rule and if i see the rule i'm just like this makes no sense i will have a hard time following it and i which which is not good it's not good but there's there's but when i see something or when I see something that's not led very clearly and they're having you do things that really don't make sense, I, have a, I struggle with that. And, and that is something over the years I realize I, I need to work on because I'm, I'm a little, I can be a little too uh, rebellious at times. But yeah, well, because the reason why I bring this up is because one of the themes of tonight's talk or of this passage is authority. Uh, we can going to be looking at the authority of elders in, in particular. And we'll look at what are elders in the first place. Yeah. But we've reached the end of our time in, uh, in first Peter. And, um, and I, I, I appreciate everyone coming out and the way you've come out and the way you've engaged, um, because this is really important. We need to be, not only be um, students of the book, people of the book, But we know we need to read scripture well. Because when you read scripture poorly, you can go down all sorts of wrong directions. Um, And uh, so that's why, yeah, it's good not just to read scripture, but to know how to read it well. So good on you for being out for all these weeks. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. This is our last section, 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is what Peter says. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, be the, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. All right. So Peter he begins. He begins with a, a so, which is a, a therefore, and uh, he's basically picking up on what he discussed last week. Like so, the the consequences of what he looked at, what we looked at at the end of chapter four, is being played out in chapter five, which leads to the question: What did we talk about in chapter four? Without looking at your notes, all right? You didn't think I could get away without one exam. So, what, what was the theme of last week's uh, passages? What were some themes? Suffering. Suffering, yeah, yeah. When in doubt, it is suffering. It shows up everywhere. Yeah, suffering. Uh, how are the? How is the suffering described? Peter uses a, a term.
3: Fiery trials.
1: And fiery trials that we go through. Yeah. So last week he's talking about the fiery trials and he's saying that these fiery trials that we will go through um, are are, are part of the Christian life. And it's where we can identify, um, we can share in the sufferings of Christ, um, where you and I, if we are faithful to Jesus, may end up being insulted in the name of Jesus and experience shame. Shame by the world's standards by our our allegiance to jesus and um and this is but this is god's purpose for us because through these trials our our faith is actually strengthened it's actually shown for what it is right so that's a that's a theme that shows up over and over again in first peter and so because because it's not easy this christian life is not an easy life we need we need um, shepherds We need uh, people to guide and to care for us in the midst of our suffering. Because if you're on your own, I mean, that was a big issue for John in the book of Revelation. Um, You know, um, when the church underwent such severe persecution, um, they rounded up, they actually killed a lot of leaders or they arrested a lot of leaders. And so the church was without, without shepherds. And it's actually the strategy that you see that the government in China does to a lot of the underground churches. They just round up the leaders and they remove all the leaders, hoping that as a result, you know, the sheep without a shepherd, without shepherds, will, will dissipate or will, will kind of, everything will fall apart. So Peter's point is that we need, we need help. We need guidance, encouragement. We need the godly example of men and women who are further along in their spiritual journey um, to help us follow these challenging um, instructions that God gives to us in 1 Peter. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How many of you in your life, think about your own Christian life, um, how many of you have benefited from having mentors in your life?
0: I have, hugely.
1: Yeah, you you wanna explain that a bit more?
0: Sure, Um, when I first became a born again Christian, even though I was raised in a Catholic home, Um, I met a lady that was about mm, 18 years older than me and she walked alongside of me, encouraged me to pray, encouraged me to get into the word. If I didn't understand something, um, she'd explain it. But then she'd call me out on my stuff if I tried to have one foot in, one foot out. And even though I still made mistakes, she didn't like um, hammer down on me and like the Bible thumper kind of thing. It was more of um, encourage and love. And I actually have that still to this day with her and I actually have it with my best friend too, where we can um, be accountable to each other and not be afraid to remove the mask and just be real and authentic and open to hear the hard stuff, even though it might hurt. And sometimes there's a lot of joy through that pain that you actually grow through.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. That is, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, and you need people like that who love you. And as I always say, who love you, but are not impressed with you. Um, that they, they they love you, but hey, they, they also see all your, your foibles and all your weaknesses, uh, but they still love you. Um, I would not be a pastor. Um, I wouldn't be in it Well, man, I don't even know if my Christian life, I mean, God in his grace, he knows, but on the ground level, I'm not sure if my Christian life would have ever taken root if it weren't for mentors in my life. Because um, on my own, I, I, even as, as a new Christian, I, I, I made some dumb decisions. And so I needed mentors. Others, have, uh, you've benefited from mentors, you're saying? Yeah?
2: Yes, sir. I've had a few along the road of life. I'm an old person. <laughs> So I have, I have had a few in my life and um, I benefited greatly from them in the sense that I started new ministries that I never thought I could do with this mentorship. I was able to start. Oh, well done. Yeah. And it made me bolder Yeah, and um, having that um, affirmation from them that, that, uh, I felt I was going in the right direction when I was looking for these particular ministries and whether I could. The upshot was, took some courses, did it, and and was so, so uplifting and rewarding. I won't go into details, but suffice to say, yeah.
1: Good. Okay. Well, um, just very quickly, how many of you uh, are mentors? Yeah. Yeah. Irene. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I see a couple of thumbs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Sumi, I saw you try saying something, but you're muted, but I know you are a mentor to many. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. See that's abs. That's really key. Um, especially. Yeah. Mike, but you and as a youth leader and a small group leader, I know, I know you've, you've mentored. I know some guys that you, you still mentor. Um, this is absolutely key, especially to be mentoring a younger generation. And the problem is, is that when you hit a certain age, you think, oh, what is the younger generation? Though They won't want to listen to me, but I think they, they do. And uh, they are just as afraid of you as you are of them. So I think it's up to us to lean in mm-hmm. um, and to mentor. Like I try to, I've been mentored by a fellow named Don Krauss. Many of you know, Don, Don's been mentoring me since 1999. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um but then he's inspired me to turn around and to mentor others, and so I've I've probably at any given time probably around uh, 10, 10 young young guys that I uh, that I mentor. But and so this is really important,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's showing up in this passage because my goodness, especially now, we're not gonna we're not gonna get through the Christian life unless we have friends on the journey, who, as Colleen would say, yeah, just who who love you, but will challenge you and give you some, some tough challenges. Uh, I think that's really important. So um, in this passage, what happens is Peter, he challenges the elders of the church to shepherd the people. And he uses the language of shepherd and flock. Um, and, and they're to shepherd, meaning they're to guide and to care for, for God's people, like shepherds take care of their sheep. Now, here's a problem. We live in 2021 in a city I don't see a lot of shepherds and sheep around. Uh, I did when I visited Carnforth in England last year, or two years ago. Nobody went anywhere last year, two years ago. Um, I saw lots of sheep and shepherds. But um, it's an interesting metaphor. We use the metaphor of shepherd and sheep, but we live in an urban context. And so I wonder, that, that metaphor is, 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 needs a lot of work sometimes, because it's not on our radar. A guy named Andy Stanley says we should just get rid of this whole idea of shepherd and sheep because nobody understands it anymore. But I'm not I'm I'm not there. I think we can still learn lots. We can still recover that metaphor. And Peter says he says so he he speaks to uh, elders in this church. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But Peter says some interesting things about himself. What does he say? He, He refers to himself as a fellow elder a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker or sharer in the glory that is going to be revealed, which is interesting. Those three things, a fellow elder, a witness, and a, and a partaker. Um, first off, Peter says, I get it, you know, because he's a shepherd. He's a, he's, he's a fellow elder, just like the leaders in this church. And so on one hand, he's saying, look, I understand the challenge of this. Secondly, he says, I'm a witness, to the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is interesting. Is he saying that he saw the sufferings of Christ as an eyewitness? Maybe, maybe. That, that might be a hint of, of, of just that, uh, remember, the earlier question we asked about whether or not this is Peter, you know, Peter from the, from the uh, Gospels who's written this, this letter. And I think there's good indication that, that it is. But it also means, it's not just that he was a witness in the serms, he saw Jesus suffer, but he's a witness in the sense that he has experienced suffering for proclaiming the truth. He knows. He knows the cost of discipleship, right? And then thirdly, um, he says, "Hey, yeah, it's it's. There's going to be difficulties, but know this: um, it's not all about suffering. I will also be a sharer of the glory that is about to be revealed. Knowing that, you know, there will come a day where." where, you know, the suffering will end. But he says, okay, so what is the role of a shepherd? He says, "He says shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Okay. Well, then he says, when the great shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory so he says all right what what is the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd and he's he's drawing from language i think from uh, the old testament i think is in the book of ezekiel where um it's it's laid out the, the contrast between good and bad shepherds am i right does anybody any experts on ezekiel i think it's in, in ezekiel um he says those who serve as elders must first be willing to serve and that means you actually want to be an elder, right? Um, you shouldn't be pressured. You know, in some churches, we do this. Um, churches that, that have a short shortage of leadership, it'd be like, uh, hey, uh, welcome to church. Your first time here. Have you ever thought of being in charge? Of... <laughs> we throw people in charge very quickly to get people doing, doing different things. But he said, no, no, this is, this is important. They need to be willing to serve uh, because their, their role, Uh, involves exercising oversight now that's not just an authority thing exercising oversight means basically looking after caring for taking care of god's people and he says as shepherds of the sheep you're gonna have a you're gonna have a certain amount of authority and so you need to exercise authority with with proper motivations and so don't be don't be going in this to think you know to make money, right? What does he say? He goes, um, not under compulsion, willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Isn't that interesting that there are some elders who may have been stepping into that position because it would line their pockets. Now, I used to pastor a church. Not, not, it's, a, it's a different church, um, but I remember one of the rules in that church. Now, I can say it because it was actually a good rule um it was a when when, (laughs) i can see eileen you're smiling it was at, at westwood but i i remember at westwood alliance church they were very clear that in the foyer between services if you're meeting people don't be handing out your ming pian your 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 business card to people don't be looking at this church as a way for you getting more clients for real estate or more clients for whatever it happens to look like am i right eileen yeah i remember uh and I thought that was really good because that is the It's like you're in positions of power and positions of influence, and you can use that position um, for unnecessary gain, for, for shameful gain. And so I think that's important. And then there's also the danger of those people who want to become elders because they like, how can I put it, they like bullying others and they like being in charge. And uh, he says, "There's a danger of elders who are domineering over others that that they're shepherding, that say, you know, things need to be done their the, their way." And oh, I, I will, I could tell you so many stories of elders that that are domineering. Not from our church. Um, Pastor Mark is very good at choosing his elders and and cultivating the culture of what an eldership needs to look like but oh my goodness i could tell you i have a lot of friends who are pastors in different churches and just just nightmare stories of pa- of elders uh, domineering and pushing people around and oh it's ridiculous i always like what pastor mark says he says a shepherd does not beat the sheep you don't beat the sheep right and so elders must teach, they correct, they can rebuke, yes. but they do so. What does Peter say? By being examples to the flock, by being examples to the flock. And that's why the qualifications of an elder are so high. And you could read First Timothy chapter three, or, or Titus chapter one. Uh, Elders must have a long track record of godly living in the home to qualify to be an elder. And again, other passages, other books in the Bible discusses in more detail. Now, who made up the elders? Well, the elderly. And that's why it's not really clear. Is this this an official, you're an elder for a six-year term being voted in every year by two-thirds vote? (laughs) Or is it these are the elderly people in the church and therefore have authority um, in the church. I, I think it's probably more the latter, though they may have some official uh, positions. And so the role, the role of an elder is, a, is, is um, a challenging role, but Peter's he says, yeah, it's difficult. You're caring for people, you're guiding people, you're teaching them, but here's the thing. If you do it well, recognize that when the chief shepherd the chief shepherd appears you will receive an unfading crown of glory right Right. this is all going to be worth it it's all going to be worth it and so this picture of this unfading crown of glory is like the equivalence of um a gold medal right you'll win win the prize it's 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 an athletic term and so um yeah, and so that's what he says. He goes, uh, "It's an unfading crown of glory." The, the crowns that you would get if you won an Olympic sport in the first century would be—it would be um, uh, usually they'd be made from plants. Well, they're not going to last that long. They're going to fade. They're going to—they're going to dry up and wither. But this—this this crown will not dry up and wither. That's that's Peter's point, and this is something that that. That you'll get, right? And so that's a picture of, of the elders. Um, and then he talks, then he just gears and he talks about young people. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about elders, don't uh, about who, who make them up. But then he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, who are the younger? Well, it's interesting. You know what the Greek word for younger is? It's the word millennial. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, i chuckled when i wrote that down earlier today (laughs) no it's not millennial that's not the greek word uh (laughs) what are the younger members of the congregation well i was referring to young men or young young women or young people and it tends to be their physical age but um also their spiritual age and um in peter's culture and in every culture since um, you know, young people have been tempted to rebel against the elders. I know that. I used to be a young person a long time ago, and I would rebel against the elders. Um, so Peter's, yeah, he's talking about young people in the church, um, probably younger in faith. And it kind of makes sense because an elder um, in, in these other passages where they referred to um, have to be, you know, um, most likely back then they, they, they were men. Uh, it was a, more of a patriarchal society. Um, and they would be a husband of one wife. And so they would have to have been married. Um, and usually, and their kids would have to be, you know, uh, doing well. Um, and so they would have to be, you know, old enough that their kids would, would be old enough to be doing well, right? Uh, or teenagers or adults. But here's the question I have for you. And this is going to be our fun breakout group time. And it will be fun. It's not a hard question. It's not a hard question. It's actually a fun question. Um, should, and some of you are, are young and some of you are not so young, and I'll just leave it out there uh, to figure out how you feel if you're young or not so young. I'll let uh, I'll let you guys figure that out. Um, here's a question, right? Should young people serve as elders now what what is a young person um typically and it doesn't have, it's not a hard fast rule but typically it'd be somebody who would be under 40 in in the ancient world someone who is under four once you hit 40 i hate to say this for those of you who are over 40 for those of us who are over 40 uh once you hit 40 you're you're old and then, and then if you're over 50 or 55 you're you're very old. Um, It's just a different, different day back then. But um, here's a question. Should young people serve as elders? How young is too young to serve as an elder? Um, Let me ask you this. How about a senior pastor? Just for fun. Uh, How old would you have to be to be a a lead pastor? Now there's a, there's a, There's a demographical reason why I'm asking you this, because I'll explain to you afterwards. But the question is this. Should young people serve as elders? Why or why not? How young is too young? Should a young person be a senior pastor? Why or why not? Right. Won't that be a fun breakout session? It's easy. You can just talk about all different things. All right. So I'm going to break into groups and I'll call you back in a little bit. Oh, actually, I have to pause recording. All right. Well, welcome back. Um, curious to know what to everyone everyone thinks. Uh, without going into, yeah, if you want to share, how many people think um, young people should serve as elders? Let's say, Kevin, <laughs> t- give, give me your thoughts on this because I uh, I'm okay. <laughs> depends on the
2: depends on the young person.
1: Depends on a young person. Okay.
2: First, yeah, First Timothy four twelve says, "Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young." But then, example in love, godliness, etc., like all of this stuff. And so, obviously, Timothy was a bit younger, and Paul's telling him, "Don't let older people look down on you." But he gives him this thing: "Hey, set an example." And then he also says in First Timothy five one something like, "Sort of don't be rude to the elders." I mean, like older people, like treat them like a father and like a mother. So. It puts us young people,
1: 52 years old, think you a proper uh, place. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Us young people. Uh, <laughs> good, yeah. Others, what do you other people think?
2: And I think, uh, I think if a young person is humble and willing to be mentored as he is an elder, I think that's kind of the key.
1: Yeah, uh, okay.
2: Uh, willing to learn from other people and yeah. because sometimes they can have some fantastic qualities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What about um, uh, a lead pastor? I mean, because the idea of a pastor elder is not much difference in, in biblically in the new Testament. It's not like there's an elder's board and the pastors, they they tend to kind of bleed into each other, meaning the same thing. Any, uh, and the, and the reason why I bring this up, let me just give you a little bit of background because right now there is a major gap, and I think this is in a lot of fields, not just in the pastoral ministry, there's a major gap between the people who are retiring and the young people who are can take their place. Um, what's missing is uh, basically people from my demographic. So I'm 55. But historically my demographic is, is there's not many of us like the, this, the 1964 to 1968, many of you know, the history, but demographically there's not a lot of us. Um, And so what you have is you have a lot of people who are within three or four years of retirement right now. And the people who are kind of in a position to take, take their place are typically 38 to 40 years old or early 40s and so um so so it's a little bit so and that's a big question you know should somebody who's let's say 38 or 40 years old take on a church of let's say 1500 people um because there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of challenges with that any thoughts
0: i think I think it's kind of risky to have someone younger and taking on a big church like that. I, th- I think it's not necessarily bad. It depends on the person, but I do think it's riskier to have a younger lead pastor than it is to have someone a little
2: further on in years. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. I like uh, Co- Colleen had mentioned uh, uh, I I snuck into a group, um, and Colleen mentioned about the importance of having, um, you know, let's say an elder or a mentor, uh, if they're walking with somebody and, uh, you know, and this young person's proven himself, maybe from the time he's working with youth right up to, to the time, let's say he's 27, 28 years old, but there's an older mentor that's working, walking with them, uh, then maybe, yeah. Anyhow, these are questions, uh, in 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 the in first peter when they're talking about the elders they're probably talking about people who are over 40 years old maybe 42 43 years old uh and up that 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 would make up the elders um but uh it's 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 a big challenge should pastors retire yes they should kevin (laughs) i've just seen pastors that that don't like I don't think you ever retire from the life of ministry of course not like as a as a follower of Jesus Christ should pastors retire oh yes they should um I've seen pastors that should have retired along it's like teachers right you know some oh sorry Kevin <laughs> uh you know those teachers that they're like why are you still teaching you hate kids by now uh, it's like and I know pastors by the time they get older it's like I hate my my congregation but I'm still a pastor so yeah, yeah yeah, if the Pope can retire, there you go, then uh, pastors can retire. All right, so Peter talks to us. So he talks to us about um, um, the elders, talks about the young'uns, and then he addresses everyone. And what does he say? He says, he says um, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the language—it's interesting that language of uh, "clothe yourself" is a strong language all throughout the New Testament. It's the language that Paul uses. And one thing that I've, I've really learned by making going through First Peter—I don't know if you've noticed this as well—is just kind of the, 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 the borrowing of language from one another between, you know, James and Peter. And uh, and Paul, and and just uh, and and then the echoes of Jesus's teaching, it, it, it you hear lots of uh echoes of scripture. Uh, but this idea of clothing, clothing ourselves in our Christ clothes, is, is uh, certainly a metaphor that uh Paul uses in Colossians 3, I think that's what comes to mind. Um, and so he says, We need to be known for our humility, uh, towards one another to put uh, others above ourselves, and so. Um, And he says, humility is not a suggestion. He says, we need to act with humility. And then just to underline it, he says, you know, because God opposes the proud. Uh, Earlier on, we read, uh, again, he's quoting uh, the Old Testament, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here, the language is that God opposes the proud and the word opposes is From my understanding, uh, it's the language that you use for an army being put in place to meet an enemy in battle. That God sets himself up against the the proud. And so we need to be careful with that. um, God opposes the proud but gives grace. But he gives grace to the humble. Which is a reminder that when we act in humility, and we talked about humility, humility meaning appropriate smallness, living in proper relationship to God and towards each other, um, then God will encourage us in this. He favors, he favors that kind of living. And so if you want grace from God, you know, you you live your life in humility towards one another. If you want God to oppose you, then well, hey. Be as proud as you want to be. (laughs) And he he hits this idea over and over again. Because what does he say? He says, close yourself with all humility towards one another. God gives grace to the humble. And then verse six, what does he say? Humble yourself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. So he he reemphasizes the importance of humility. Humility. And then he says these words: humble yourself. And he says, "Cast all your anxieties upon Him." How do you uh, how do you deal with your anxieties? Actually, I want to ask you that: How do you handle your? I'm assuming that some some of you out there, not just me, that some Others other than me feel anxious at times. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's four of us. Okay. No, <laughs> there's a few of us. How do you deal with your anxiety? I take it to the Lord. So, what does that mean, Lori? What does that look like?
3: Um, Sorry, yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. No, no. Nothing.
1: I know you don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I too am prone to a lot to anxiety. Um, I, I'll worry a lot about things and then I have to remind myself that that's me trying to control the situation. Um, mm. And then I, I have to take it to the Lord in prayer and that ends up being a, a daily thing, sometimes yeah. an hourly thing. Um, and I'm not, just, I'm not just being funny, I mean it seriously. Oh, no, I, I know, yeah. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah, I think the older you get, the more you worry, I think. The yeah. more you realize there's stuff to <laughs> there's stuff to worry about, yeah. yeah, and stuff that you never thought about when you were really young. I'm, <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah. So taking it to the Lord really means that I lay it before the Lord, and um, sometimes I have to really work not to take it back again. I have to yeah. Yeah. continually lay it there.
1: So I mean, I'm curious. Um what is that what does that specifically look like? Does it just say God, this is what I'm worried about. I give this over to you yeah um that that kind of thing
3: yeah i I will first of all confess my weakness mm-hmm. um, because i I feel that one of my one of my greatest sins is worry, which I think is a form of selfishness. Um, so I I daily have to have to remind, you know, lay those things before him and confess Mm -hmm. that that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, yeah, just, just, just pray for his strength um, and to remind myself that the weaker I am, the greater his strength can be uh, in me. And yeah. Yeah. And mm. then to read passages that tell me not to worry. And at the end of the day, remind myself that the worst thing that can happen is I can die. And that's actually probably a great thing hmm. because oh, cool. I have to remember where I'm, where I'm going. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's all. Wow. That's, thanks for sharing. That's, that's very good. I appreciate that. Pat, you also are breaking the problem into subcategories, like to actually say, what is it that I'm worried about and being specific yeah. with that? I like that. Yeah.
0: And the, Part would be um reaching out to god to to look after this part and other parts might have to be like looking after uh finances responsibly or you know and then looking after things so breaking it down takes the anxiety away
1: yeah yeah oh, i like that um i had a friend of mine well you guys know uh some of you may know remember john morrison but john morrison uh he said something really interesting He was talking about jesus's teaching about um you know, each day having enough trouble of its own, right? And he says, God will give you the strength to deal with each trouble that comes your way each day. But he will not give you the strength for imagined scenarios of tomorrow. And I and I really like that because so much of my anxiety is about, well, what if tomorrow or what if next week or what if, th-? and, and then your mind starts going in these scenarios and you get all anxious. And I love John, he says, he just said yeah jesus promises to give us the strength for the troubles of the day not for the imagined scenarios of tomorrow and now yeah that uh, that that's always stuck with me um, so whenever whenever my mind starts going down the track about well what if in this and then this and then this like no no it just gives you enough for each day yeah but it's interesting there there is something we need to do though that peter is saying it's not just uh, he says we need to Cast, cast, that, that's an intentional action, isn't it? To cast your anxiety upon him. Um, that, that is something, as, as Lori was sharing too, you know, just it's something we need to do. It is something we need to do. Um, and I think we live in such an anxious age now. We really do. Uh, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. But we need to cast our anxiety. But then notice what Peter says. The next part is really important because he says, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And I think a lot of our anxieties stem from the fact that we forget that Jesus really does love us. And we know it. But again, as I always say, the, the challenge of the Christian life is learning to believe what we say we believe. Um, that he really does care for us. And so when that happens, we, we cast our anxieties upon him. Uh, uh, we, yeah, we cast all our anxieties on him. And, and it's interesting, he says in, in verse 6, just look, he says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you interesting um it's a reminder that god is powerful enough the mighty hand of god he's powerful enough to deal with our anxieties uh but also he is loving enough that he'll meet us and care for us in the midst of our anxieties and he says um he says uh so at the proper time he may exalt you um it's a reminder that you know we need to have um perspective. And it's kind of what you're saying, Laurie, at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Well, the worst thing that can happen to you uh, is, is actually, is not the last thing that will happen to you. The last thing is, is life and love, right? And so Peter's emphasizing this, you know, hey, this, this life is not all that we have, right? But he also tells us that in our anxiety and our str- struggles and in our sufferings, there's, there's another factor that we need to pay attention to and that's why he says be sober-minded be watchful why because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour well we need to remember this there's an adversary out there who wants to take you down but one of the questions i mean i have this down is like is the devil real?
3: Yes. Yeah? Yes?
0: Yes. D- I d- say to you... my non-Christian friends, yeah? don't forget God has an
2: opponent.
1: Yeah. But do you find that in our modern world to talk about the devil, like is just really awkward now? Like, like I almost feel like I'm, like I'm living in the 13th century when I bring that up, but it's true. It's it's so true. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, he likes to exacerbate our anxieties. Yeah,
3: I think that's one of his greatest weapons against those of us in this um, so-called enlightened world is to to think that he's he's not real. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and that's the, the strategy is, is different. Um, he doesn't have a lot of strategies, but his strategy in the Western world is is to tell us that he doesn't exist. Um, if you, as many of you uh, grew up in other parts of the world, uh, you'll know that you know spiritual warfare is 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 different there. It's 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 full on power encounters. Um, so people, you know, growing up in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia or in East Asia or in Africa um it's it's very different the, the, the strategy of the evil one in the west is to put us to sleep and say ah, he doesn't exist what do you you know living in the middle ages you know but here's the thing um we know from what scripture has taught us one that he's real that there's a malevolent personal force that's in opposite that that hates god and, and is going after his creation um and so we need to be sober-minded. We need to be on guard. And here's the thing. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. Now, let me give you a personal example of this. <laughs> Last Sunday, I had you guys pray for me, right? Do you guys remember? There's a whole week ago. Um, because I was preaching on on uh, a topic, on, on sexuality. And, um, you know, our, we live in very you know very volatile times especially when it comes to issues of identity and sexuality so going into last week from the time I recorded it on Thursday to the time I preached it on Sunday I was so I was so jittery I was almost saying I was almost nauseous like I, I really was and I've never ever felt that way about a sermon but I was so so anxious, so out of sorts, and then, then all of a sudden, on Saturday, I'm thinking, "Huh, I wonder if this is like spiritual warfare." <laughs> I've forgotten all that. I thought well yeah i guess I guess there there could be some opposition to me in all this um and so i I, I sent out a note to you know just a couple of my um people within my circle, I just said, uh, you know, can you pray for me um about this?" and And they prayed for me and um but it's something I'd forgotten all about. like I teach on spiritual warfare all the time I, but it completely slipped my mind and I realized okay that that's that's what uh, that that's partly what's going on. so we and and so in many ways, I was not uh, sober minded and watchful at all. I was anxious and uh, what's the Greek word? I was a twit, I think that's a Greek. Word. Um, but um we need to be sober-minded and watchful because there is an opponent. As and as Laura, you put it well, um, he, he exacerbates our anxieties and he just plays with them. And he goes after you, and you call yourself a Christian. What you know, you know all sorts of all sorts of these lies. And so Peter's uh, teaching us: we need to be sober-minded. Again, he's the second time he said this: sober-minded and watchful. And we need to stand firm in our faith. Isn't that what he says? Yeah. Um, Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? And so stand firm in your faith. And I love that picture. It's the same picture we get in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God. We put on the armor of God so that we can stand. Right? This picture of standing firm in our faith. Um. Yeah, and so it means to stand firm in your faith is to commit yourself to living your life as an elect alien in this world, knowing that to uh, ally yourself with Jesus will get you into some trouble, right? Um, And again, he reminds us, um, he reminds us that... uh, That Yes, you will suffer if you ally yourself to Jesus. But then he says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And again, I love this picture after a little while. A little while. So Peter's reminding us that this time is short. You may live 70, 80, 90 years. Um, that's just, what does Lewis say? The cover page of a book that goes on forever, right? That we, we are living forever. And so what we experience now, it's Paul writes as our, our momentary, right? These are light and momentary afflictions. And he says, the God of all grace will help us. And so God's grace, and what does God's grace do? He will restore us. He'll confirm us. He will strengthen us and he will establish us. And telling us, you know, we he will help us stand strong and make it to the end. And I love that because in the book of Revelation, um, over and over again, the message to the churches is like he who stands firm, who is not overcome. Um, he talks about you know, resisting the calypsis, the suffering, the pressure that comes our ways and, and become overcomers. And so, yeah, so we need to be, resist the devil, recognize that we're not alone in this battle, that God, because of his mighty power, will, will help us, that we can cast our anxieties on him and uh, that we will stand firm and God in his grace will restore, confirm and strengthen us. To him be dominion forever and ever amen. Now you think at that point Peter would be like, all right. That's good. But he's like, hang on, I got I got I got one more thing to say. <laughs> okay. if he if he had stopped in in verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever amen. I think that would just be a good good ending. But he has a postscript. What does he have as a postscript? Well, well again, yeah, and but the verse 11 to him be dominion forever and ever amen. That's important because he's reminding us that the devil does not have dominion, but God does. And the devil may roar and, he, and he's got teeth and he can mess you up, but he does not have dominion. He's not in control of this universe. And sometimes as Christians, we, we, sometimes, we sometimes look at the devil as God's equal opponent. There's God and there's devil and, you know, on one shoulder and the other, you know, Fred Flintstone kind of thing, you know, you have the the angel and the devil. And that's not the biblical picture. That's actually a picture called um, Manichaeism. It's it's an old, old belief system. God is sovereign over all things. And to him belong all dominion. And uh, the devil's roaring because he knows his time is short. And it was uh, as John Fortune preached on the weekend, uh, his his time is short right then but then we get to the very end and in verse 12 he says by sylvanus Sil- or sylvanus a faithful brother sylvanus i think a faithful brother as i regard him i've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is a true grace of god stand firm in it again stand firm in it she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Now, who is Sylvanus? Most likely, it's um, we've come across him in in the Book of Acts. We've come across him in Paul's letters. It's probably uh, Silas, another name for Silas. Um. Now, why do, he refers to Sylvanus for a couple of reasons. One is it could be that Sylvanus is one who wrote first Peter through Peter's dictation kind of thing. Um, but he may have had better penmanship than, than, than Peter. But he also says, Peter says, uh, Sylvanus is a good example, right? He's a good example. Um, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Now the whole point of first Peter is to show what faithfulness looks like. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, Sylvanus perhaps embodies this. He is, he's one who, um, who, who, uh, who's an elect exile. He's one who honors everyone, loves the brotherhood, fears God, honors the emperor, right? He's the one who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, blesses those who revile him, honors Christ the Lord as holy in his heart, and always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks him for the reason for the hope that is in him. He's self-controlled, sober-minded, rejoices as he shares in Christ's suffering. Yeah, he's a a faithful brother. And then he he says, in all this, you and I need to stand firm. He says, we have received the grace of God. So stand firm in it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That because of Jesus, you and I have received God's grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. We've received salvation because of the cross of Christ. He says, this is, so this is what, this is a gift to you. You've been given God's grace. You've been given eternal life. You've been given an inheritance that will not perish. You've been given all these things that we've read about in first Peter. And then what does Peter say? Stand firm in it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's just this picture of stepping into it and saying, ha. This is where I can stand. I can stand firm. I can get the lay of the land. This is where life makes sense. So stand firm in it. Then he makes a reference to Babylon. She who is at Babylon, what is he referring to? Who's at Babylon? Rome Rome, yeah, 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 Babylon's just just kind of a, a code name for for Rome, so it, uh, it shows up again and again, you have to realize Peter, which gives us indication that Peter's writing this letter most likely from Rome, it's in Rome that uh, Peter spends considerable time until he's executed by Nero in the mid sixties, uh, but what is he he's pointing? I mean, when Israel was in Babylon where what What was their state? They were in what?
0: Exile.
1: They're in exile. Yeah. So that's why he chooses Babylon. He goes, we're all in exile. It's a picture of exile. We as the church are in exile. So I'm writing to you from Babylon, also a fellow person in exile. And as a church, we are all, this is not our home. And then he says, you know, um, yeah, so those who are in Rome send you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Mark is, um, we come across him in, in the book of Acts as well. It looks like Mark was also, well, Mark is the is the young man who, uh, who who, when Jesus was arrested, fled, wearing nothing but a smile. Oh, no, <laughs> he had no clothes on. Yeah, and apparently ran away. Um, and so Peter's just saying, hey, look, you who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, recognize we are all in this together. We are all resisting the devil. Sylvanus is resisting the devil. Mark, he's he's resisting the the devil. And all of us can learn. We can learn from, from these guys. We can learn from these experiences of other churches that we're all in this together. And I think this is important for us. I and mean, this is where I think Western churches, we can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters in the global South, who when they or, or in East Asia, because when we talk about persecution, they're like, yeah, that's nothing you want to talk about persecution, we'll, we'll tell you about persecution. Um, yeah. So I think we can learn a lot from them. But Peter's point is, is, is to remain firm in your faith, remain firm in your faith. And, uh, and he concludes his letter with a, with a blessing. Greet each other with a kiss of love. I love that. Just this, this deep love that needs to characterize the church. And peace. Peace to all who are in Christ, which is an interesting way to end a letter. And he's, and he's recognizing that you and I, we need peace. And um, our, our hearts and our circumstances may be stormy. But even in our fiery trials, while we're suffering for our allegiance to Jesus, Jesus gives us his peace. And I'll tell you that peace is something we need in this anxious world of ours. And that is the end of 1 Peter. Yay, we made it to the end. Any uh, questions or comments in terms of what we looked at? I'm probably going to. Let me just stop the recording here.
0: Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.